Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Paul Murray, on his book along listed novel, The Beasting. Paul Murray was born in Dublin in 1975. He is the author of An Evening of Long Goodbyes, which was shortlisted for the Whitbread First Novel Award and nominated for the Kerry Group Iris Fiction Award. Skippy Dies, which was shortlisted for the Costa Novel Award and the National Book Critics Circle Award and longlisted for the Booker Prize, and The Mark and the Void, which won the Everyman Woodhouse Prize in 2016. And Paul's latest novel, The Bee Sting, is what we're talking about today. Paul, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi, Neil. Thanks for having me. First of all, then, tell us how you would describe the novel. I guess I always describe it as, like, family saga. I mean, that's pretty much it. It's about, um, it's about the Barnes family... Uh, they've got a, a car dealership um, in the Midlands here in Ireland. And it's, uh, you know, from being sort of grandees in the town, it's a very successful business. Uh, suddenly they've hit the skids and things are unraveling um, very, very quickly. And so the Midlands in Ireland, which is where it's set, it's, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I grew up in the Midlands in England and had no idea that there was actually a Midlands area of Ireland as well. Although I guess realistically there's a Midlands of everywhere. Um, but what particularly is the Midlands of Ireland like? Well, I guess it's not particularly anything. I mean, that's that's when you think about Ireland, you, you think about, well, I think of Dublin, which is where I live. But I mean, when people visit, they tend to go to the coast. They go to, to Galway on the Atlantic, or they go down to Kerry, or they go to Donegal, or to, you know, Wexford, Waterford. So you think of, you know, you think of like windswept, um, very kind of dramatic waves crashing against cliffs type of, of landscapes. Those are the kind of the images that come to mind when you think of Ireland, perhaps. And the Midlands tends to be a bit neglected. There are very beautiful parts of the Midlands, let me stress, but it, it's often kind of a bit overlooked. And I guess the town that the book is set in is kind of, kind of certainly through the eyes of the younger characters, it's just a place they need to get out of. It's a place where there's there's just nothing going on. And so, like Cass, the young, the teenage daughter, uh, she's determined to go to Dublin. Dublin is where it's at. Um, but England sort of appears in the book as well, like frequently as a place, you know, sort of where you can kind of, you can sort of transcend your past and you can disappear into the into the, into the crowds. And the book is set in the main, in the present day, roughly. There's sections set in the past, but it's set post the, you know, the, the big financial crash. And I've spoken on, on the podcast to other writers about how that has affected both 
Dublin and Belfast, but tell us how the the financial crash tended to affect people that lived in this area. Well, I mean, the crash the crash in Ireland just went on and on and on and on. So like, I think like 2014, 2015, that's when the book is set. Like that's that's when Ireland is starting to emerge from the crash. So, so it went on for like six or seven years and it was really like just devastating. So many factory closures, so many sort of shops closed down. Um, so many people left, so many young people left. So we're still kind of dealing with um, with the with sort of the fallout from that. So for instance, when you go to a music festival, there's always like a disproportionate amount of people like me, sort of middle-aged people. And I, I sort of, you know, congratulate myself and think, what a, what a young hipster I am. But the reason is that like, you know, 10% of the population left and most of them were young people. And it being Ireland, there was a huge amount of, there was a huge amount of guilt when the crash came. The government line was, we all partied. That was something I think the, the finance minister said. So we all partied during the good times, um, the Celtic Tiger as was. And so this was kind of the punishment that we we sort of deserved. So in the book, like the family, the Barnes family has this car dealership and the car industry was hit like particularly hard by the crash. So Ireland went like very, very dramatically in the 90s from being like a, a pretty poor country, one of the poorer countries in the European Union, to being like a very rich country, a very kind of globalized country where you had, you know, your Microsofts and your Goldman Sachs and your sort of big pharmaceutical companies like investing and building sort of serious HQs here. So it got rich very quickly. And what a lot of people did, the first thing they did was go out and buy cars, you know? So it went from, so the car was like, was like a very dominant kind of status symbol in Ireland. And people were sort of pretty uh, determined to have like the newest models, you know, with every new year, people would rush out and get the latest model. So when the crash came, the car industry was probably hit harder than, than most. So that's the situation the protagonists find themselves in there's this like there's this for starters there's this like real serious hit to their their pockets but also there's a serious hit to their standing in the town because it's a small town and it's quite hierarchical it's fairly clear who the kind of the 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 grandees are um and the barons family have been you know kind of regarded as being kind of an important family a well-got family in the parlance um in the town so there's a certain amount of schadenfreude now among the townsfolk like watching this this family They've been, you know, going on four holidays a year and all kinds of ostentatious things, um, watching this family sort of now uh, being kind of like very publicly kind of pilloried by this like this kind of endless like tsunami of bad news that, that, the, that the crash represents. The motor trade, Dickie Barnes being a, a motor dealer, a business he inherited from his father as well. So it's been in the, in the family trade for, for decades. This works both brilliantly as a metaphor for the um, for the financial crisis, as you've just talked about, but also for the climate crisis, which is another preoccupation of the book. There's a lot of hiding in the book. You know, um, I guess like one of the things we're particularly good at in Ireland is burying the past. So like, you know, I like to say that when, when, you, when you're speaking to an Irish person, it's like, because people, Irish people are so so good at talking, you know, everybody's so funny and has such amazing stories to tell. And a lot of the time it's a way from, it's a way for, to, to lead you away uh, from what, what they're actually thinking. And I guess like the car, when, when, you know, I was talking about this, this, the Celtic tiger and the car being like this, this sort of the kind of the first kind of uh, first port of call um, for newly rich people. Uh, it's a status symbol and status symbols are a way of concealing yourself, you know? So, so I guess like that's what, Part of my interest in the climate change is our collective failure to do anything about it. So our collective failure to recognize like it's just the hugeness of it. 
And even when at this stage, like everybody kind of knows, like it's just, you know, inconceivably massive. And everybody knows that like it's it's very, very bad as it stands. And it's just going to keep on getting worse and worse and worse until we do something about it. Um, and yet we can't do anything about it because to do something about it, like something meaningful about it, would require us to like to change the way we live um, in a pretty significant way. And like the car kind of represents all that because like the car is this, you know, it's kind of like the cornerstone of like a capitalistic kind of image repertoire. You know, you know, you look at all these ads and it's like a dude in his car and he's like bowling down like the side of a mountain uh, or along the ocean or something like that. And it's the, it's like this, it's this symbol of like autonomy and independence. And it's obviously it's a lie because like, firstly, like in a car, you never, ever, you're very rarely um, like bowling down, you know, um, alongside like an ocean. Usually you're just stuck in traffic, cursing all the idiots, you know, who are blocking the roads. But at the same time, we don't, we don't kind of like, we're still reluctant to recognize that we're sort of reluctant to kind of give up our cars, for instance, like in Dublin, like Dublin's like, a, it's like a medieval city and it's, the streets are kind of, the streets are narrow and it's hard to get about in a car. Uh, nevertheless, like people will just like not leave their cars. So, so the Dublin city manager, he talks about, he's talking about it recently. He was talking about like, you know, no matter what happens, he's always surprised at people's like willingness to now go through really anything before they'll leave their cars. You know, you could almost like, you could like, you know, there could be like a landslide or something blocking like all major road arteries and folks which are still there kind of still, still is going to sit there, you know, diligently you know, waiting for it to be cleared before they think of going on the bike or, or walking there might be. And of course, like the car is like a major generator of climate change. Um, there's 1.2 billion cars in the world. I read this amazing article by Rowan Atkinson. Rowan Atkinson, it turns out, is he's, uh, he's, he's sort of an expert on cars. Like his degree is in electrics and electronic engineering. And he's got a master in control systems. I don't know what that is, but uh, he's certainly got a lot of knowledge about uh, cars. And he's talking about like sort of, you know, our, our, the failure, instead of like fixing the problem, we've got sort of like various manifestations of, um, well, basically Atkinson's take is that the electric car like isn't going to work. They're, they're, apparently the um, batteries are so, they're so, the, the rare earth minerals uh, are so kind of costly to discover and to use. Uh, and they're so heavy that um, it makes like, they're, they're not actually cost effective at all. So we're kind of living in this kind of this, this false paradise as regards the electric car which we've all sort of, you know, hailed as being kind of the, the, the way out of the sticks that we're in. So we can kind of have our cake and eat it. We can, we can hang on to our cars uh, and climate change will disappear because we've got this, this kind of virtuous car, which we plug in instead of like, instead of filling up a petrol station. But like in actuality, it's probably not going to work. And we're still locked into this model, even with electric cars, whereby, you know, people still get like a new car every three years. And there's like, there's no reason for doing that. So well, according to Atkinson, there's no reason people don't need a new car every three years. Realistic because cars are so well made now, you know, they'll last for like you know, 20 years if you keep, you know, if you take good care of them. But at the same time, you know, the car is, the car is like very important to people, like as a symbol of who they are, or rather who they want people to think they are. And Dickie, uh, the, the, the motor dealer in the book, he's, he, that's all he is. Like this, he, he's kind of completely blocked out uh, who he actually is. Um, and instead is kind of like leaning very hard into who he wants, who he wants people to think he is. So it kind of makes sense for him to think to be a to be a car dealer. I guess, like ironically, he's he's also deeply concerned about climate change. But still, instead of actually, you know, um, he still wants to keep his car business going. So instead of like doing something about that, he's like building um, he's building like a bunker in the woods, and that's like his way of his way of addressing it. So I guess, like I guess, my yeah, my interest in climate change is like I'm interested in climate change because I'm a human being, and I don't want to die 
um, in an inferno. Um, and I've got a, you know, I've got a, I've got a uh, child, you know, and I don't want my child to live in a sort of a disintegrating planet. Like none of us want that. And yet it's really frustrating that like collectively we're just, we're still unable to do anything about it. So I guess like, like I didn't want to bang any drums in the book. Like it's, it's climate change. Unfortunately, one of the difficulties about it is that it's something that when people start talking about it, you sort of instantly want to turn off because it's so, on the one hand, it's so like intractable and vast. On the other hand, you feel personally chained by it. You know, you feel personally you're responsible for it because, you know, we're all responsible for it. And that doesn't help. But at the same time, that's that's one of the major obstacles. So I guess like, I guess without wanting to bang a drum, I still wanted to make it like kind of a, a driver in the plot because I feel like, you know, in 2023, it doesn't feel right that there should be like that there, you know, most artworks shouldn't even like refer to this like monumental disaster that we're in the middle of right now that we're contributing to right now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Into Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Paul Murray, and we're talking about his new novel, The Bee Sting. And Paul, in this second half, I want to go through the four members of the the Barnes clan. Um, the book is full of a huge cast of characters, but focuses mainly on on these four. And we'll touch on some of the other characters as we go. But let's talk first of all about Cass, who is the um, the daughter. Tell us something about who she is. So Cass, she's the character I started with. And she is, uh, she's 17. She is about to finish school. 
the final exams here are called uh, very poetically the leaving. So she's about to do her leaving. And her hope is that she'll get enough points in, in these final exams to get her into Trinity College with her best friend, Elaine. And she has this, this obsession with Elaine, which like may not be entirely healthy. And she's kind of keeping a lot of, um, a lot of her feelings to herself. Um, Elaine and she have a substitute teacher who is a poet. And that's why they're going to Trinity, because this, this substitute teacher has bewitched them with her own glamour. And also with these kind of very romantic tales of the tragic lives of, of lady poets like Anna Akhmadova and Elizabeth Bishop. So um, that's what they're kind of ostensibly hoping to be. And poetry, as Cass sees it, poetry is not to be had in the small town where they live. Obviously, as we discuss all of these characters, we're, we're keen not to give away too much about what happens in the book. But you mentioned her relationship with Elaine, her best friend. And I wanted to just talk a little bit more about writing that relationship. Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, I didn't want anybody in the book to be a villain. Like, I think everybody in the book is, is doing their best. Like, very few people in the book are actually acting out of mouse. That said, I guess uh, Elaine is one of, like, personally speaking, I find Elaine kind of like one of the more like problematic characters she's 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 just she seems to have it all she's very beautiful and she's very confident and she comes from a family which which is uh, as rich as Cass's family used to be and Cass is very nervous about Elaine finding out that her family is no longer rich Elaine has this bond with Cass's mother Cass's mother Imelda as we'll talk about I guess is a famous beauty and Elaine relates to Melda as a famous beauty no one thinks Cass is a famous beauty. So she feels kind of marginalized in that way as well. So I guess like Cass's journey is like, she's got to, she's, she's got to find a way to break free from Elaine. She's different to Elaine. Like she's very sort of sensitive and thoughtful and it's not impossible that, you know, she could end up being like a, a good poet at some point, but she's very much under the sway of Elaine and Elaine's sort of obsession with, you know, team modeling websites and being cool in a very sort of, you know, mainstream way. So like one point of conflict between the girls is when Cass gets a boyfriend called Rowan and she gets a boyfriend because she has a sense that Elaine wants her to get a boyfriend. But after a while, Elaine stops wanting Cass to have a boyfriend. So she starts being quite critical of Rowan. She starts calling him soy boy and urging Cass to kind of move on and find someone else. So Cass is like, she's like, she feels pretty, she's very sort of, she's very like, as everybody is as a teenager, she feels very self-conscious. And I guess kind of Elaine represents the eyes. Everybody in the family, the Bryan's family, feels like someone's observing them, feels like the town is observing them. And I guess Cass feels specifically that Cass, that Elaine rather, is the person she's got to impress. So she feels she feels herself and her family and her past mostly in terms of shame. Like she's 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 embarrassed by her family's kind of financial disintegration. And she's kind of she knows there's something going on in her parents' lives. Something has gone on that's not quite right but she's afraid to dig into it or to ask any questions. She's just concerned that like Elaine never, ever finds out. In the same way that like, you know, a middle-class person would like keep their car nice and clean on a Sunday. Cass's thinking is like, how can I keep up appearances as regards Elaine? And that's like, that's not a healthy place to be. And PJ, her younger brother, who is just barely a teenager. I want to talk here more generally about writing in this register of, you know, young people, both, Cass and PJ, um, you've done this before, most notably, obviously, in, um, in Skippy Dies. But just tell us something about writing from the perspective of an early teen. Like, I mean, I don't know what it says about me personally, but it's not, it doesn't feel like a major leap 
uh, to write in that voice. I guess I feel kind of fairly connected to my to my sort of you know like entertain whatever you know you make of that. Um, so like I mean I guess I guess like PJ is PJ is kind of an he's kind of an innocent. Like I guess all of the family members are trying to escape. You know they just want to be somewhere else. They want to be they want to the family sort of disintegrating, and they all want to fly off in different directions. Each of them has their own trajectory that they want, that they see as an escape route from this, this like this unlivable, you know, uh, supernova that is the current family situation. Uh, so Cass wants to go to Dublin and, you know, Melton wants another thing and Dickie wants another thing. And PJ, PJ doesn't really want that. PJ's got, he's, he's young. He's got a good heart. He's very sweet. And he's, he just really wants everybody to stick together and everybody to be happy and everything to work out. And he can't do that. He can't, he's like, he's touching 13. He doesn't really have any power at all. And I like, I think that, I think we can all kind of, you know, tap into that time in our lives when we were powerless, you know, um, because it drives a lot of our lives. Subsequently, you know, you know, when, when, when we, in our adult lives, like so much of our adult lives, when I was writing Skippy Dies um, and thinking about the difference between, you know, the teenagers in the book and the adults in the book and the teenagers that I knew and, and was and the adults that they turned out to be, I mean, like so much of the adult life seems seems like a reaction to the teenage life, and kind of an assertion that you know, well, now I now I totally you know now I'm the guy with the now I'm the guy who knows what's going on. Pay no attention to the kid behind the curtain. So PJ is like he's at sea because his parents he thinks his parents are going to get divorced, and he's going to be sent to boarding school. And Cass has explained to him very patiently that they won't send him to boarding school. Because they don't have any money. Like that's the whole reason the marriage is, is falling apart. But PJ, even though he can sort of see that, he can understand it like logically, he can't bring himself to believe it. So he is freaking out about that. And he's lost Cass. Like Cass, you know, when 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 Cass is younger, um, she used to play with PJ all the time in the woods. So the house, they live in this big house in the countryside, and they've got this this forest uh in their back garden. And they spend a lot of time playing there when they're kids. And but now Cass has grown older, and she's got sort of too. She as as PJ sees it, she's too sophisticated to play with him. But in reality, like Cass is too sort of embarrassed by everything, you know, every single aspect of her life to allow kind of PJ to come close to her friends. Or so PJ's hanging out a lot in the woods because he's scared to go home because he wants to stay out of his parents' way. So just stay under their radar, and then maybe they'll forget about him being like a drain on their finances and wanting to send him to um, wanting to send him to uh, to boarding school. So he's, he's hanging out in the forest. Cass, there's like an old shed in the forest, which Cass has been using with her friends uh, to drink in. And that's kind of all fallen by the wayside. But now PJ has adopted it. He's got this quite malign friend called Nev. And Nev is kind of a spoiled, pretty unpleasant character who goes into the woods, goes outdoors sort of on sufferance. Like sometimes just his mother sometimes kind of, you know, makes him put down his, um, his PlayStation and sort of drives him into the outdoors. And he sort of very reluctantly follows PJ into the woods and uh, mostly just complains to PJ and sort of hectors PJ and criticizes PJ for PJ's, PJ's life um, and PJ failing to entertain him properly. So he's also got this online friend called Ethan, who is PJ's obsessed with this kind of this Nazi video game, a video game that's sort of you know hunting Nazis. And he meets this kid online called Ethan, who he's only ever communicated with online. And Ethan is... Seems to be like one of the few genuine allies that PJ has left. But we can see that like Ethan, again, may have more to him than meets the eye. And this kind of escape route that PJ imagines, like, again, may be more um, compromised than he expects. 
And I wanted to move on to Imelda, who is the mother and, and the character that it seems, while all of the family are obviously hit hard by the downturn in the in the family's finances, Imelda seems to be the one who whose sense of herself is affected most of all by it. Um her narrative style is is slightly different to the others as well, a sort of stream of consciousness. Um and also we we see her past. And I don't I don't really want to go into her past again because I don't want to give too much away, but if you could just tell us something about who Imelda is when we meet her. Uh, yeah, so the way the book works is Cass and PJ narrate the first two sections and their parents appear kind of on the margins, as it were, through their eyes. And, and so they appear to us like in kind of a fairly two-dimensional way. And they seem kind of uh, objectionable and just sort of money-obsessed and consumerist and a bit kind of blah. And in the way that like a kid might see their parents, you know, um, like... When you're a kid, you don't really imagine your parents as having like real lives, like having a past. I mean, you, you know, objectively that they had past, like, you know, from their photos and so on. But like, in actuality, you don't really believe that like anything that happened to them before you were born, like genuinely mattered. Like their job is sort of to, to kind of give rise to you. And, and that's as far as, it, as far as it goes. So then when you get to Imelda's section, you discover like how she came to be married to Dickie. You see her for the first time through her own eyes and you start to realise that there's a lot more going on there than, than you'd seen previously. Um, so Imelda's had a very different upbringing to uh, Cass or PJ or Dickie, who she's, who she's married to. She's come from like a pretty tough background. She hasn't had a whole lot of formal education. Uh, so her section is like narrated in this, uh, I guess it's sort of a, a stream of consciousness. And it starts off in the present with this uh, dinner party that she's, she's kind of, she's, she's going to under duress. And but then there's like sort of a, a long flashback and you discover you discover about her home life, uh, her, her childhood and her youth and how she came to meet Dickie. And it's like she's a very, as I say, she's different to Dickie in that she doesn't have this kind of she doesn't have as much formal education. So she thinks in this in the, on the one hand, she thinks in this kind of quite in a kind of a sort of a, in a way that can seem kind of jumbled or, or sort of like emotional. But at the same time, she for the same reason, she has kind of an openness to her, I think, that gives her kind of um, or an, op- an optimism, maybe, or or like a, a way forward that like that Dickie doesn't have. She's obsessed with, because she's had this like very difficult upbringing, she's got this very kind of almost childlike reliance on money and possessions and the power of money to transform a life. So when the family is rich, she really like leans into, you know, conspicuous consumption. She's got all the, the right stuff. And then when the family runs out of money, She's like very, very, very anxious. And she doesn't, to her, it seems like the entire world is disintegrating. And she, she's going to be returned to this like very, very precarious place that she, that she came out of before she met Dickie. And we've talked about Dickie in the first part a lot when we talked about the motor trade, the sections in this book about Dickie that again go to his past. And, and I don't really want to delve into that too much. So to finish this off, I'm going to ask you if you would read us a bit. Okay, so this is the start of Dickie's section, which is called Clearing. Why do people say the birds and the bees, the boy said, when they're referring to sexual intercourse? Dickie paused, confused. We've been confused since he arrived. Are you talking to me, he said. If they mean it as a euphemism, the boy went on, they clearly don't know much about either birds or bees. In both cases, their mating habits are quite baroque, although perhaps that's what the expression's getting at, that nature is almost never natural. Do you think that's what it is? When people say the birds and the bees, do they mean the orgiastic? Students were drifting by, dawdling over the cobblestones, which had grown worn in the unseasonable sunshine. It's so easy to join them. Say he had an appointment, hurry off, or not even speak, simply nod benignly and continue on his way. 
but he didn't know what was the correct thing to do. For a week he hadn't. He constantly felt on the verge of committing some terrible faux pas, even when doing something ostensibly quite straightforward, like checking his coat at the cloakroom or walking as he had a moment ago through the square. Simple things baffled him. Conversations were unfathomable. To begin with, every facet of life at Trinity was known by some archaic codename. Buttery was the bar, the lucky was the library, Michaelmas term was this October, and he was a junior freshman. He'd figured out that much. The countless other references remained obscure to him. House 6, the GMB, the 1937, Derns? And he only ever understood a tiny portion of what anyone said to him. Worse, even when it seemed like he did understand, he still found himself at sea, because people who habitually said the opposite of what they actually meant and expected you to be able to tell them. Irony was the university's lingua franca. It made it impossible to know if someone was being serious or making fun of you. Take this boy who had accosted him. Dickie had no idea whether the absurd language of preposterous matter was something he was putting on, or if he was doing it to be funny, i.e. to signal that it was exactly what he was not like, whether he thought it was impressive. In that case, or in the case that it was what he was really like, whether he was regarded generally as a freak, or whether others found it impressive also, and so Dickie should too. It was too much to figure out then there. He should have just kept walking, but he found himself pinned to the spot by the boy's question, the boy's questioning gaze, like a bested sailor held at the point of a sword by some swashbuckling buccaneer. These, for a start, the boy said, releasing him, at the very least from the necessity of answering. The mating habits of the honeybee are case in point. The Virgin Queen, is that Baroque enough for you? The Virgin Queen sets out on a flight during which thousands of drones try and have sex with her. Only a dozen or so manage actually to mount her. Of those dozen, each will have added ten times. This is all happening mid-flight, by the way. And when he finally drops off, he leaves his guts behind. His penis is barbed, so it's ripped out of his body when he withdraws. Now, that's hardly what your parents meant when they told you about the birds and the bees, is it? Perhaps if you heard that as a child, you'd be traumatized for life. No one would ever have sex again. The species would come to an end. It would be like Japan. The boy was quite conspicuously ugly. He had hair the color and texture of the stuffing of one of Dickie's old teddies, a sort of beige that looked as if it was never intended to see daylight. Ruddy cheeks and pale eyebrows dominated by a pair of enormous tortoiseshell rimmed glasses. His eyes were large and cobalt blue. His nose was large too and blunt, set over a pair of bow lips that were unnecessarily red and shapely, almost as if he'd been wearing lipstick. Lips would probably have looked very nice in someone else, figuratively, but here the fragment of perfection just added to the overall sense of chaos. Lips were moving again. As for birds, they were saying. At the next stall over, a girl had stopped to talk with the two boys, seated behind the little makeshift counter. There was a brief exchange. The girl gave the boys a pound note, signed her name to a list on the clipboard, then went on her way. Everyone seemed satisfied. Why hadn't they spoken to him instead of this oddity? What did he want from Dickie? Banner over his headset in an august, slightly old-fashioned font of the historical society. Dickie liked history. Even if he didn't, he would have been happy to join, if only to escape from the boy, but the boy didn't seem to have any intention of asking him. The fact is that the vast majority of male birds don't have penises, he was saying. Instead, the female has to extract the sperm from them. All the males can do is flash their plumage and hope to catch a rat. Most of them never got to shag their whole lives long. But the birds that do have penises, he went on, tend to have absolute whoppers. There's a duck in Argentina whose cock, when erect, is longer than his body. Can you imagine? But nobody ever says hung like a duck, do they? Why is that what you say? Dickie opened his mouth and closed it again. Heat had risen from his feet, threw his body to mass in his head, and as a consequence, he felt a sudden and vehement impatience with him. We seemed to see Dickie simply as an audience on whom he could try out his sophistries. Sophistries, there was a word that might give him. If Dickie could summon the courage to use it, enough of your sophistries. I grow weary of his sophistries. That would show him who he's dealing. That would show him that Dickie was not just another the grown-ups cultures up from the country to do engineering, lectures from nine to five at the far end of the campus, living in digs, home every weekend, every weekend with their jocks and a pillowcase for mammy to wash. No, Dickie was studying in business, meaning his days were spent amid the casually clad Dublin girls and public school transplants who paraded around the arts block, one of whom had asked Dickie yesterday, apparently in all seriousness, although who knew where he summered. 
So I've been talking to Paul Murray. We've been talking about his book, The Bee Sting, which is out now in the UK from Hamish Hamilton. Paul, thanks so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.